Let's stand up. Let's pray. Um, I want you to pray and ask the Lord to give you uh, grace with me today. <laughs> yeah. Uh oh. <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna need it. Don't 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 judge me. Let's lift our hands. Holy Spirit, we welcome and invite your presence, your ministry. We thank you for the light and the truth that you bring to us. We stand upon the scripture that says you've not given us a spirit of error, but the spirit of truth. And I ask you, spirit of truth, to anoint me this morning and help me to deal with these topics and sensitive issues in a way that will bring life and healing and freedom. And uh, give you thanks and praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever believed a lie? Anybody ever believed a lie? Believed something that wasn't true? <laughs> Excellent example. If you didn't hear it for the tape, a uh, gentleman said, you're not supposed to talk about politics in the church. So, sure, we've all believed lies, right? You've ever believed a lie strongly? Now, here's the dangerous thing about believing a lie. You think it's true. You're not deceived if you know you're deceived. Right? And we live in a democratic society, and our brains are kind of wired this way, but particularly in the West, the more people believe something and the more you hear something, the truer it feels or the truer it seems. And so when you hear something that may go contrary to what you've always heard or to what the majority of the people are saying... Uh, then it, it, you, you are wired to immediately at first reject it. You're just wired that way. But John the Baptist was called a voice crying in the wilderness, which means he was saying something that the people hadn't heard before. It's part of the reason that they tried to silence him, why he had his head cut off. Jesus upset the traditions of his day because they said, what's this new doctrine? That this person is bringing. There's a proverb. <clears throat> I looked it up and now I forgot it. But it's Proverbs 18:17. I think. I just looked at it. You can go through Proverbs 18 or 17 or somewhere in that vicinity. It'll do you good to read them probably anyway. A- and you'll find it. And it says this. It says, the first to state his cause, the first to state his cause seems true until he is cross-examined. Think about that. The first time you hear something, it seems right. You ever you ever get caught up in something where you didn't have all the facts? Come on. This happens all the time. You hear somebody say something about somebody and you believe it. Oh, my God, I can't believe that's true or whatever. And then you hear the other side of the story. It's like, oh, well, I didn't know that. Oh, well, I didn't know that. So there's something about hearing something first, the first time you hear it, that seems true. There's something about the majority of people saying something that makes it seem true. And something about the more times you hear something said that causes you to believe it. You literally become hypnotized uh, into believing something that may not necessarily be true. Right? So, <clears throat> one of the problems that preachers have, and I have great compassion for us that are preachers, is uh, we only get exposed to one set of information and you become accustomed to viewing things through whatever the glasses were that were given to you first when you first heard something, right? And those, those glasses, pretty soon you don't even realize you have the glasses on because you've heard it so many times that you just automatically accept something as being right and true. 
Now, one of the things that happened, well, okay, so let's, let's lay down some principles. First of all, understand all scripture, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for all that stuff that Paul said, right? Instruction and righteousness, all that good stuff, right? Um, and, and so therefore, all scripture is profitable, but here's, here's a principle we have to understand. All scripture is for you, but in reality, none of it was written to you. None of it was written to you, even though it's profitable for you. Right? And nobody's going to disagree with that statement that, that takes the Bible seriously. I mean, when you're reading in the book of Thessalonians, it's to the church in Thessalonica. When you're reading the book of Revelation, it's to the seven churches that are throughout Asia. I mean, it's very clear that stuff is being written to a specific group of people. The reason that's important for us to understand is that everything that's written in the Bible has a cultural, historical context to it. Now, culture determines meaning. You don't get to determine meaning for culture. Culture determines meaning for you if you want to understand what is being said. So, perfect example. Uh, where are you from again? Originally, where are you from? From England. So, if I said to somebody from England, I have a flat, what do they think? What do they think? If I say, I have a flat. A flat in England. What is a flat? An apartment, thank you. Now, if I come to an American person and I say, I have a flat, what do you think of? Ah, see how much culture determines what's being said? Take the term gay, for instance, and go back to the, the 1920s, maybe the 1930s. What did the word gay mean back then? That you're happy, but you cannot expect to use the term gay today and get that point across. Right? In our culture, if you announce that you are gay, people are not thinking happy necessarily. Right? Because they're thinking about sexuality now, right? So do you see how, and that's just in what? A hundred years. So you see, or, or current, but, uh, across the pond, so to speak. Meaning changes. Same language, different meaning. Because it's the culture that determines what's going on. Right? Now, how do you understand what's being said to an ancient culture when that ancient culture doesn't exist anymore and you have nobody that you can go interview and find out what it means? You ever thought about that? So the way that Bible scholars do that, I have great respect for Bible scholars because they have more information than we do. So one of the way Bible scholars do that is they find writings that are left over. People were very uh, prolific uh, during the time that the Bible was being written, there was a lot of stuff that was a lot of philosophy and a lot of stuff that was being written. And so in the 1940s, anybody ever hear of the Dead Sea Scrolls? I, they had them up in Denver uh, at the museum for all summer. You could go see the Dead Sea Scrolls. So the Dead Sea Scrolls were a discovery in, uh, in the Holy Land of these ancient texts that had been preserved by a community of people known as the Essenes or the Qumran. They're called the Qumran community. And these were ancient manuscripts that had to be treated as such. Uh, In other words, you couldn't just open them up and start reading them. 
They, they had to be preserved. They had to be re- restored. Then they had to be translated by someone who knew the ancient languages before anybody could have access to it. And that took until about the 70s or the 80s. And so the only people that had access to the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 70s or the 80s, I want you to to hear me on this, were people with PhDs that worked at places like Harvard and, and places like that. Now, why are the Dead Sea Scrolls important? Because when they began to read the Dead Sea Scrolls, they understood the times of Christ in a way that was completely different than anyone in the modern era had ever considered the culture at the time of Christ to be. In other words, it opened up for us what scholars now call Second Temple Judaism, in a way that people could not understand. So, for example, if you read your study Bibles that were translated without consideration of the cultural context as revealed by the Dead Sea Scrolls, or if you heard preaching that was based on some of that stuff, you would be told that the Messianic expectation, the expectation of the Messiah, was strictly that he would be a political Messiah who would lead an uprising against Rome, Yes? And that the, that the Israelites missed who Jesus was, the Jews missed who Jesus was, because he did not come in that form or fashion. He came to set up a spiritual kingdom, not a natural kingdom. Okay, lie number one that you have an opportunity to let go of. Because lo and behold, as they began to read the Dead Sea Scrolls, they began to, uh, hold, a totally different picture began to emerge of what Messiah was about and what he was going to do. And in fact, they were expecting Messiah to come at a time period that they called the end of the age that was based on the sun's movement through the Maseroth. It's in your Bible, Maseroth. What does Maseroth mean? Anybody know? It means the circle of the zodiac. And the sun moves through the circle of the zodiac. The sun is actually rotating around a central spot in the universe. Most people don't realize that. And a solar year, meaning it takes a year for it to rotate, right? A solar year in our time is 2,000, about 2,500, 2,600 years. Are you breathing? They also found out that in the temple, and I'll get into this in a minute, in the temple, because this all ties into the priesthood, that in the temple, the curtain to the Holy of Holies was uh, artistically done with what? The Zodiac. And so as the sun moves through the Zodiac, when it, when it transitions, it's called the end of an age by all the ancient people, especially the Jews. That's why the Magi, who were astrologers knew that it was time for the Messiah to be born because they recognized it was the end of one age and coming into a new age. And so the expectation was that Messiah would come and establish a spiritual kingdom and he would open up the heavenly Jerusalem and lead them into a new promised land that was in the heavens, not one that was natural upon the earth. Because even though they were in the earthly promised land, they were not occupying the promised land. They were occupied by Rome. Is everybody breathing? Okay, one of the texts that they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls is called the Melchizedek Scroll. The Melchizedek Scroll. And what they discovered was that the expectation for the Messiah was based around the person of Melchizedek. They did not know this before. 
and the year of Jubilee. Now, here's why I'm talking about this right now. Does anybody, anybody ever heard of Yom Kippur? Anybody ever heard of the Day of Atonement? The Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur was Tuesday night. Tuesday night into Wednesday, this last one. It was the day upon which the high priest would go in behind the veil in the temple into the Holy of Holies and offer the blood of a goat in order to cleanse the tabernacle, not to change anything in the heart of God. It was not an appeasement offering so that God would not be angry at Israel. That's nowhere in your text. You can look in Leviticus chapter 16. It was there to cleanse the tabernacle from its defilements. And then he would come out and he would confess the sins of the people over what was called the scapegoat. And the scapegoat was driven into the wilderness and believed to ultimately fall off a cliff and die. And in that way, sin was being removed from the camp. And so all of that stuff has been interpreted for us in light of the Reformation who was trying, with Martin Luther and all those guys were trying to figure out what, what happened with sin and personal salvation. So we put interpretations on all of that. But when you read the Melchizedek scrolls, here's what you discover. They believed the temple system was totally corrupt. Because it did not come from a pure seed of Levi. It came from all these political uh, Rome and all these different occupying forces had put uh, corrupt priests in the temple system. So they believed that the temple system was corrupt and they believed that a pure priest was coming after the order of Melchizedek on what was known as the 10th Jubilee. Are you still breathing? I know I'm throwing a lot of information out at you. What was the Jubilee? The Jubilee happened every... So so everything in Israel was set up on a cycle of Sabbaths. You have six days to work and seventh day to what? Rest. Then you have six years to work the land, and on the seventh year it is a Sabbath, and the land rests. Then you have seven sevens, which gets you to what? Forty-nine. So you have seven Sabbaths of years for the land, and when you got to the forty-ninth, you had the year of Jubilee. Now the year of Jubilee was a time when you gave the, uh, the land its rest, but you also canceled debts, released your slaves, and everyone was returned to their family property and their family inheritance. So in other words, if in the 50-year time period you lost your land because of hardship, you sold it, you, got, uh, you, you came in debt to your fellow Israelite, or you became a, basically an indentured servant, you became a hired servant in the house in order to survive because you messed up and whatever else, on the year of Jubilee, all that was canceled. It was called the year of the Lord's favor. And all of that was canceled, and you were set free from your slavery, you were returned to your property, and your debts were canceled. That was, that was supposed to happen. Every, there was debate whether it was the 50th year or every 49 years. But every seven sevens, that was supposed to happen. Okay? So Jesus, when he shows up, he says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, preach deliverance to the captive, recovery of sight to the blind, set at liberty them that are bruised, and do what? Preach the acceptable year of the Lord. It's the year of Jubilee. And 
Something else we know from the Melchizedek scroll, he's reading from the book of Isaiah, they said the person that would fulfill that would be the high priest who would come after the order of Melchizedek. And the, and the atonement that he would accomplish would not be a physical atonement in the temple, it would be a literal atonement in creation that would heal and reconcile all of creation. Because the temple simply was a model representation of the universe. Okay, so if you know anything about the structure of the temple, I'm going to assume you don't. But when you walk into the temple, the first thing you have is an outer court. And that symbolized the world. You had, you had basins there full of water that symbolized the oceans. When you walked into the next section, it was the holy place. Guess what was in the holy place? The menorah or the lampstand. Guess how many lights were on the lampstand? You know why there was seven? Because it represented the seven planets that they knew about at that time. Because now you're moving into the place of the stars. Then you go in and you see the Holy of Holies, which is the wallpaper, if you will, for lack of a better term, oh Jesus, the wallpaper for the, the holy place, and you see on it the Maseroth, or the constellations, the circle of the zodiac. It represents the physical heavens. So then the high priest would go through the uh, veil of the temple. When he was doing that, he was, he was moving out of the seen, visible, physical order and moving into the unseen, invisible order and the company of angels in order to heal the breach between that which was physical and visible and material and that which was spiritual and invisible and supernatural, including God in you, but not limited to just God in you, including the angels in you. Because the serpents... All right, you got, you could, uh, there's a story in the Bible where uh, people begin to accuse Moses and it says the Lord sent fiery serpents. Bad translation. Bad translation. It's the same word. It's a word for seraphim. So when Isaiah goes in behind the curtain and stands before the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6, and he says there were seraphim, and they were crying out, Holy, holy, holy. It's the same word Moses uses when he says God sent fiery serpents. So what happened? The seraphim were the guardians of God's glory. So when Israel begins to insult Moses, they insult his glory. And the Bible says God sends seraphim out and the seraphim begin to destroy the people. So what does God do? He says, take a bronze serpent, put it on a pole and hold it up. And when you hold up that bronze serpent, whoever looks at will be healed, literally raised from the dead because they all died. There was no healing. Now, how does a dead person look at a pole? But here's the point. Jesus said, just like Moses lifted up the serpent, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. What's he representing? The cosmic level of redemption that brought, that brought healing between that which is natural and that which is spiritual. So that everything could flow in harmony together. Are you breathing? Are you doing okay? Is this boring? It probably is for some of you. But I promise you it'll get cool if you'll just stay with me. Colossians chapter 1, I'm just going to read this to you. Verse 15. Now with this idea of a cosmic covenant 
being done on the Day of Atonement. I want you to hear the words of Paul. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things and all in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him. Now listen to this. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood of His cross. So the Day of Atonement was simply this. It was the high priest going in to bring reconciliation between all things in heaven and on earth. But it was only a type and shadow, so it had to be repeated every year. And it was repeated at the end of the harvest cycle because they were an ancient people dependent upon rain. So the high priest would go in and that would secure the rain for the next year because the rain came from the heavens. So any breach between the heavens and the earth or in the invisible and the visible had to be repaired and healed. Are you breathing? Now with this in mind, come with me. Now we'll get into the message. That was all introduction. Come with me to Daniel 9. This is where we depart from your traditions. Where Everybody, everybody say, just say with me before we do this, it's very possible that I have believed a lie. <laughs> say this, it's very possible... Point at me. Everybody, no, point at me. Not yourself. Point at me. Point at me. It's very possible Aaron believes the lie. All right? So that's why I said Give me some grace. But also understand, I've probably had access to scholarly information that you have not. Okay? There's also a proverb that says, A fool answers a matter before he hears it. So just remember, you might be conditioned to reject what I'm going to say, but it may have more to do with your conditioning than truth or error. Is that fair enough? All right. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 27. Now, how many of you came out of like some kind of traditional evangelical church background? Baptist, Pentecostal, charismatic, Pentecostal holiness, a few of you. Okay. So uh, assembly of God. In fact, you can't even join the Assembly of God as a minister if you don't believe what I'm about to um, dismantle. (laughs) All right. That's why they don't like me. think I'm a heretic. Seventy weeks, or in the original language, seventy-sevens. Seventy weeks are determined for your people. Okay, let me give you context. Daniel is concerned... The prophet Daniel is concerned about Israel's captivity in Babylon and he wants to know when they will be released from their captivity so that they can return and build the second temple and thus the creation of second temple Judaism that I was talking about earlier. Tracking with me, right? So when he says 77s, what he's talking about is the Sabbath rest of the land or he's talking about 10 jubilees or 490 Years. All right. Are you breathing? Seventy weeks 
are determined for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up or fulfill vision and prophecy, and to anoint the holy of holies. Know therefore and understand, from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, or 600, or 69 weeks, right? And the street will be built again, and the wall even in troublesome times. And after 62 weeks, I'll explain the time to you in a minute, don't get hung up on it. After 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week or seven years. But in the middle of the seven years or the one week, he shall bring an end. He shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate even the consummation which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. So here's the traditional interpretation. There are 490 years given to Israel to fulfill their ministry to the people. And they'll basically fulfill 69 of those, or 483 of those. And there will be seven years that will be a period that they don't get to fulfill that, that this is what our Bible interpreters start cutting and pasting. Because they say they don't let it be a concurrent time period. They say there's a seven years that gets thrown off into the future someplace. And that is your only verse for a seven year tribulation. Only one in the Bible. And you have to cut and paste it. That's your first problem. Second problem is you have a future prince who is to come who is not the Messiah when the text clearly says Messiah the prince will come. Let's just look at it, saints. In other words, what I'm dealing with, just to help you out if I'm losing you, is the whole Tim LaHaye left behind structure of rapture, Antichrist showing up, tribulation, rebuilt temple, abomination, desolation, destruction of the temple, Jesus coming, and God destroying everything in a nuclear holocaust. Isn't that a pleasant thing to look forward to? This is where it comes from. So 70 weeks, or 10... uh, Really, the, the issue is 10 jubilees. 10 jubilees. Now, here's what the Dead Sea Scrolls say. They said that Messiah would come at the time of the 10th jubilee. And at the time of the 10th Jubilee, he would fulfill Daniel's 70 weeks. He would fulfill Daniel's 70 weeks. There is no other player here. (laughs) Even the destruction of the temple, because they said that temple system is corrupt, and it's only a model of creation. And when the new Melchizedek comes, there will be no need for a temple, because you don't have to recapitulate a sacrifice every year, because the rift and the reconciliation has eternally happened. He's going to bring in an eternal covenant. He's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. He's going to end iniquity and transgression and sin, and therefore put an end to sacrifice and offering. Getting awful quiet in this 
Where's Jordan? Methodist Church. <laughs> That's an inside joke. Or is it Presbyterian? I can't remember. <laughs> Presbyterian. <laughs> that, that's just between us. But anyways. <clears throat> are, are you tracking with me? All right, now watch this. Seventy weeks or years. Now know therefore and understand, verse 25. Know therefore and understand from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. Who's the Prince? Who's the Prince? The Messiah. Right? Everybody say, the Messiah is the Prince. Okay, thank you. So Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. That's the second temple. Not a third temple, second temple. And after 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince who is to come. Who's the Prince? Who's the people? The Jews. The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it will be filled with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. Which temple is going to be destroyed? A third temple in the future? No, the second temple. And why does it say the people of the prince who is to come? Glad you brought that up. Because there's a historian named Josephus who records for us the Roman destruction of the second temple and Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And you know what he said? Josephus, himself a Jew, blamed the destruction of the temple on the Jews because they kept provoking Rome until the Roman general was so angry he ordered the complete destruction of the temple. He's doing everything he could to preserve the holy site. But it was the people of the prince who was to come who were so cantankerous and kept pushing him and pushing him and pushing him that caused him to go in and destroy the temple. But the reason the temple was destroyed was because it was no longer needed. Because it was only a type and shadow of that which was eternal that was to come. You doing all right? Now let me just take you through this real quickly. It says that there would be a finish that there would be a finish to the transgression. Well, who finished the transgression? Jesus did in Isaiah 53.5 and Hebrews 9.15. We're told that he put an end to transgression. Who makes an end of sins? In Matthew 1.21, Jesus will come and save them from their sins. In Hebrews 9.26, he does away with sin in the sacrifice of himself. Make reconciliation for the people. In 2 Corinthians 5.19, we're told that the death of Christ reconciles the world unto God. We just read it in Colossians 1, 19 through 20, that he reconciled all things in heaven and on earth to himself. Who brought in everlasting righteousness? Jesus did. 1 Corinthians 1, 30, he's become for us wisdom and righteousness. Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, that I might attain to the righteousness which is by faith in Christ. Who fulfilled the vision and the prophecy? Jesus did. Matthew 5, 17 through 20 and Luke 24, verse 44. He says, all things that were written in the law and the prophets were fulfilled in me. And anointed the most holy. In Hebrews 10, 14 through 20, you can read about Jesus as the high priest of Melchizedek who goes in and anoints the heavens themselves, not the physical temple. So this is a messianic prophecy about Jesus and what Jesus was going to do. There's no antichrist in it. There's no reason to just cut and paste seven years and put it off in the future. Jesus' ministry was how long? 
Three and a half years. What is three and a half years? Half a seven. What's the covenant being confirmed for three and a half years? God's covenant with Israel. Jesus said, I'm only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Remember the lady with the issue, of, or not the lady with the issue of blood, the, the Syrophoenician woman who had a daughter who needed healing, and he said, it's not fit to take the children's bread and give it to dogs. And then she, he says, I'm sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. When he, on the night that he was betrayed, what did he do? This is the blood of the new covenant. That's the peace treaty that you're waiting for, by the way, in the Middle East. (laughs) Only place in the Bible you get seven years tribulation. Only place in the Bible you get a future person called the Antichrist. Only place in the Bible that you get a peace treaty because they say that confirming the covenant is some peace treaty. No. (laughs) He didn't say make a covenant. He said confirm a covenant. So Jesus is operating on the covenant that God already made with Abraham and the Jewish people. And he ministers on that basis for seven years, but he's cut off in the middle of it because they reject him and crucify him. Seven years were ordained, but in the middle of it, he's cut off, but not for himself. And when he's cut off, what does he do? He puts an end to sacrifice and sin because we've been reading it week after week after week after week that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So why in the world do we have a whole group of people that call themselves Christians, that say they believe in the blood of Jesus, that are all for a rebuilt temple, and they're, they're lathering, they're, they're, they're frothing at the mouth for this rebuilt temple and this reinstituted animal sacrifice? And let me ask you this question. If it's the blood of Jesus Christ that takes away sin, if it's the blood of Jesus Christ that brings reconciliation, and only the blood of Jesus Christ that brings in everlasting righteousness, then how in the world can it be an abomination for somebody to say, don't sacrifice bulls and goats anymore, when the writer of Hebrews is saying the same damn thing? Listen, that we have this idea that there's going to be this rebuilt temple and, and, and the Antichrist and they're going to be sacrificing bulls and goats and God's somehow going to be honoring a Messiah rejecting, Jesus rejecting people, blood rejecting people. But somehow now they found the ashes of the red heifer over in the Middle East and they found something to sacrifice over here and they're building the temple now. And so, so now somehow they're bringing that in and God's okay with it. That's not Christian. You want to know who the Antichrist is? The Antichrist is coming out of that stuff. And it ain't a person, it's a spirit. So then we say that the Antichrist, whoever that is, Henry Kissinger, Ronald Reagan, Barack Obama, whoever it is, some Muslim coming out of the Middle East, somebody coming out of the homosexual movement, I mean, I've heard them all is somehow going to allow Israel to reinstitute sacrifices and then go in and say, you guys need to stop this, when the Bible said you need to stop it, and somehow that's an abomination that causes desolation. Give me a break. Do we even do we, do we read our Bibles? Or do we just like to write and sell books? A few years ago, John Hagee, yeah, I said it, John Hagee, wrote a book called The Blood Moons. You can find it on the 25-cent shelf now. He made millions of dollars off of blood moons, off of red moons that you can see in North America because, of course, the center of the universe is North America. Never mind that in Israel the sun is shining when you're seeing your blood moon. Just saying. 
And tying all these scriptures about the blood, the moon's going to turn into blood and all this. And I'm like, yeah, it's being written in Israel. And guess what? The sun's up in Israel. And if it's not, if that's not bad enough, if that's not bad enough, he says every time you have these certain sections of blood moons, they were called tetrads, four blood moons. Every time you have four blood moons, every time you do that, some significant event happens um, in Israel. And he said the Spanish Inquisition, the Six Day War, all that stuff. So I did something. I just went to Wikipedia. I looked up the dates. I did simple, 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 simple stuff. I went to Wikipedia. I looked up the dates for the Spanish Inquisition. Wrote them down. Went to Wikipedia. looked up the dates for the Six Day War in Jerusalem. Wrote them down. Okay. Then you can go to NASA's website and find out all the astronomical information that you want to find out about astronomy. And so I just put tetrad in. And I looked at the dates for the tetrads. And guess what? They didn't correspond. And the blood moons, so in Hagee's book, he says these blood moons happened and then the Spanish Inquisition happened. And when you look at it, historically, simple research, the Spanish Inquisition happened, then a few years later you had the Tetrads. Six-day war happened, the blood moons, six-day war happened. Guess what happened? Six-day war happened, months later, whatever it was, Tetrads. You can go look it up. Lying in print to sell books and get rich. Lying! To people. And you know what? And and he set himself up because he said, well, it's every seven years because he's using the Sabbath. So he said, if it's not this Shemitah, which is the Sabbath year, it'll be the next one. So he just set you up to buy his books in another seven years. And we keep recycling this garbage and believing this garbage. And, and we put people in fear and we put people in bondage and we make liars rich promoting an antichrist system that has nothing to do with Messiah because it completely rejects the cosmic sacrifice and the fullness of what Christ did in Daniel's prophecy. I know some of you are like, it's bad enough, I took away your Lord, I took away your hell, I took... now I'm taking away your rapture. But I'm also taking away your tribulation and I'm taking away your antichrist. And I... Why do we keep doing that stuff? When are we going to wake up? I mean, my anybody's been around us for 20 years. I've been saying every time they say Jesus coming back, I say he ain't coming back. 2000 Y2K, Y2K is going to be nothing. Everybody's buying tribulation food, and 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 remember that. And the Christians were the worst ones, and you know why? Because they were making money, because they were selling you astronaut food, so you could survive whatever. I can say it ain't going to happen. And then, the, you know, the terrorism and the war and, oh, there's going to be peace treaty. Ain't going to happen. Some people are saying 2012. Ain't going to happen. That's four blood moons. I'm on record. I re- repeatedly said, Jesus is not coming back September 28th because that's what they were telling people. Same book that says you cannot know the day and the hour and they're saying September 28th. And here's the thing. People buy into it. And they don't invest in the stock market. And they don't take care of retirement. And they don't teach their kids about things that you're going to have to deal with because Jesus is going to come back. Because we think we're sitting here waiting for Him when the Melchizedek prophecy is this. He will go into the Holy of Holies. He will make atonement for creation. He will reconcile heaven and earth. He will reconcile all things to Himself. And then He'll do what? He will sit down at the right hand of the Father waiting. What is He waiting for? He is waiting till His enemies be made a footstool for His feet. He is the head of the... Body. The feet don't stick out the head. 
The head does not come out and do it. The head is seated until the body, until there is an energetic... You really, Okay, what is a body? What is a body? Try not feeding it for a while. Try not drinking anything. Try, try, um, hold your breath long enough to pass out. Why do you pass out? Why do you faint when your blood sugar gets low? What happens? The energy goes out of the body. So what is a physical body? It is a physical, energetic system that allows for the expression of a spiritual being. Yes. So the body of Christ is what? It is the energetic system in the earth whereby all that is in the head gets distributed throughout the body. So Christ is not just Jesus in heaven. Jesus is the head of the Christ. The Christ is the energetic system in the church when the church walks in the fullness of the reconciliation that she's been given, not waiting to die to get to heaven and not letting the earth go to hell, waiting for Jesus to split the sky and jerk you out of here because you don't want to take responsibility or deal with life. And so we're just waiting for, you know, someday, some, sometime, sometime when we all get to heaven, we'll sing and shout the victory. Sometime Jesus will come and jerk us out of here. Not, and, you know, Jesus do this for us. Jesus isn't going to do anything for you. Jesus is not going to do anything for you that He has not already done. So quit asking Him to. I know I sound like a heretic, but listen to what the man said. The works that I do. You shall do also. Thank you. Because I go to my Father. What happened when He went to the Father? He made atonement for creation. He healed the breach between the invisible and the visible. Which means He healed the breach between the invisible you and the visible you. See, you have a divine spark. You have a divine seed. If you are a son of God... Okay, listen to this. Dogs give birth to... Trees give birth to, what was that worm called? Hornworms give birth to, hornworms. People give birth to, God gives birth to. So if you're a son or a daughter of God, hello? All right, Saint, okay, Aaron, you're a heretic. This is terrible. This is horrible. Really? Saint Athanasius, who really Western theology prior to Augustine is built on the writings of Athanasius, St. Athanasius. And you know what he said the Christian creed was? This is what he said the Christian creed was. They'll crucify you. They'll throw you out. They'll, 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 they'll write stuff on your Facebook page. Say he doesn't believe in the blood. He's not a Christian. He's abandoned the faith. And you know what Athanasius, one of the great fathers of the faith, said the Christian creed was? Man, God became man so that man might become God. And we're spending time trying to figure out, instead of waking up to our own stuff, so you, so, so you, your spirit is divine. Your spirit is eternal. You were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world, and it's in you, but it's locked up. Because your spirit is the tree of life that Adam could not get access to in his fallen state. And he could not, and, and, and by the way, Eden wasn't on the earth.
Because Paul clearly says, I was caught up into the third heaven, into paradise. Jesus clearly says, I will give to you, to him that overcomes, I will give the right to eat of the tree of life, which is in the garden in the midst of paradise. And Paul says paradise is in the third heaven. So the fall did not happen on earth. He did not fall from earth to earth. He fell from the heavens to the earth. So Lucifer might actually be humanity and not the devil. I'm just saying. (sighs) Darn. Which means that, that, that while angels could intervene because they're God's servants, they could intervene in the affairs of men. Men could not have fellowship with the angels. And the angels could not have fellowship with people. So watch this. Jesus reconciles the invisible and the visible. The divine you is invisible. The physical you is visible. The atonement reconnects you to your own divine self once you're reconnected to the head. When you're reconnected to the head and you understand the body is the energetic system by the Holy Spirit of the person of Christ and that God's intent is that the church grows up to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. That Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father till His enemies are made a footstool for His feet. You quit asking Jesus to do something for you because he's waiting on you to access by faith and by the spirit the fullness of what he accomplished by reconnecting you to your own divine self so he said you could speak to the mountain you don't ask him to speak to the mountain you could speak to the mountain and the mountain will move you don't have you you shall receive power when the holy spirit has come upon you if you abide in me and i abide in you you will bring forth much fruit if you abide in me and my words abide in you you will ask what you will and it will be done for you by my father who is in heaven we're so busy trying to ask what god's will is thinking it's some predetermined plan that we have to walk into when the whole thing is set up for you to grow up into your sonship grow up into the fullness of the measure of the stature of christ bring forth and rise and elevate the divine spark that is in you by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the power of faith so that you can act as a God and a Lord in the earth. When it says He's the Lord of Lords, what Lord is He Lord of? Sure as heck isn't those political guys. When He's King of Kings, who is He the King of? If you're after the order of Melchizedek, and Melchizedek is a priest and a king, and Jesus said that He came to make you what? Kings and priests unto God. So you have to function in the dominion that Adam lost. By accessing the fullness of what Christ made available to you. But instead, we're writing books about stuff that ain't ever going to happen. It is the figment of someone's imagination that they passed off as revelation. And actually, it wasn't even just their imagination. I'll give you the history of it, and I'm done. How many of you heard of the Reformation? Cardinal doctrines of the Reformation. You're saved by sola fide, faith alone. Right? One of their doctrines was sola scriptura. It's Latin. The scriptures alone. Why did they have to have the scriptures alone? Because until that time, Scripture was not the authority in the church. The Pope was. They're breaking off from the Pope. The Roman Pope. Am I right? So you know who they said the Antichrist was? You know who they said the beast was in the book of Revelation? The Roman Catholic Church. 
And you know who they said the Antichrist was? The Pope. So you know what happened? The Catholics got together, all the big shots, the Pope and all the big shots. They said, we got to do something about this. This is wrecking our kingdom. So you can look it up. So they started what's called the Counter-Reformation. Did you know there was a Counter-Reformation? They had to counter all the doctrines. They started saying, no, tradition is more important than Scripture and, and down stuff. So they had to come up with an Antichrist to take the, whole, the heat off the Pope. They had to come up with a beast that wasn't the religious system that they were a part of. So you know what they did? They commissioned a Spanish monk to go in to figure out how to take the heat off the Pope. So you know what he did? He found Daniel 70 weeks and he said, I see it. It's a political leader that's coming in the future. And the beast is a future kingdom. But he couldn't write it. He could not write it as a um, uh, Catholic bishop, right? Because that'd be too obvious. So he writes a whole commentary on the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, and Matthew 24. I didn't even get into Matthew 24, which I wanted to today. He writes a whole commentary on it and writes it as a Jew. He lies. He says he's a Jewish somebody, rabbi somebody, and circulates it. Now, that means nothing to you, except that there was a group of people in the 1830s called the Plymouth Brethren over in England, and a guy by the name of John Nelson Darby found that book in a library and read it, and started teaching Bible prophecy conferences. Still means nothing to you, except there was a man, an American, by the name of C.I. Schofield, who attended those meetings. Anybody ever heard of the Schofield Bible? Okay, Schofield was not a nice man, but he was a smart businessman. And he understood that people wanted to understand the Bible, and they couldn't. So he was the first person to put study notes in a Bible. Because prior to that, it was considered to be sacrilegious because you're adding to the Word of God. Are you breathing? So he publishes a Schofield Study Bible. And guess what notes he puts in the Schofield Study Bible? The Counter-Reformation notes that came by way of this Spanish guy and John Nelson Darby. And he, and he thought he'd make millions of dollars. And he was right. Schofield Bible shows up in America and it's sold like hotcakes. And so the entire religious consciousness of America gets baptized in something that originated in the Reformation to take the heat off a godless pope that was murdering people who didn't believe like him. Check it out. It's all there. All right. Sorry, I get a little passionate about this stuff because it ruins people's lives. It steals the future of our youth. You know why Marilyn Manson, you know, they, they interviewed Marilyn, you know who Marilyn Manson is? The rock star, those of you who know, that took his name after a, basically a sex goddess and a murderer. Right? And does all this stuff to Satan. You know, he was raised in a fundamentalist church. You know what he said in an interview? He said the reason he started serving the devil was he was fed this garbage about the Antichrist and the tribulation and all that junk every Wednesday night when he was drugged to church and he figured if the devil had that much power, maybe he was more worth serving than Jesus. All it ever did to you was scare you to death. All it ever let people do was project their fears of abandonment onto a God that would leave you behind. I mean, who didn't watch those stupid movies in the 70s? <laughs> okay, I need to shut up. 
All right, let me give you this. They say the rapture of Jesus will come as a thief in the night, right? The thief, remember that thief in the night and the, the razor? I remember the electric razor and the guy disappeared and that lady's left there and you know that whole thing about we're all left behind now we got to deal with the mark of the beast and all that other stuff. Yeah. Well, what makes somebody a thief? Yeah, but if, if it's a property crime, what's the issue? Taking something that's not theirs. So how in the world does he come as a rapture to take his own? If he's coming as a thief in the night. Or, as it was in the days of Noah. Hmm, seems like the righteous stuck around and the wicked were taken away. Two will be grinding at the mill. One will be left, the other will be taken away. Two will be on the rooftop or whatever. One will be left, the other will be taken away. Because he comes what? As a thief in the night. Because what does a thief do? You know there's a book in the Proverbs that says the righteous will never be removed from the earth. And yet there's people that will say, well, the force restraining the Antichrist is the Holy Spirit in the church. And when the church is caught up into heaven, then the Holy Spirit is taken away. And that... It's ridiculous. All right, I'm done. Remember I said, have favor, have grace with me, don't, don't be judgmental. You can check me out. Huh? And there's cake. Thank you for reminding me. We're going to break bread together. If you don't, hopefully. Look, I've been doing this a long time. Most of you that have been here, I've done this like a bunch of, I've been doing this since the 90s. And I'm more convinced the more I study it. I mean, it's just, when you see it, you can't not see it. All right, let's stand up. Travailing. Creation is groaning and travailing for what? The manifestation of the sons of God. Because all of creation will be brought into the liberty of the children of God. Romans chapter 8. How about this one? Peter says in Acts 3.17, he says um, that heaven has to retain Jesus, has to hold on to him until the times of the restoration of all things. So heaven can't even release Jesus till all things have been restored. He ain't getting up till his enemies are made a footstool for his feet, and the last enemy to be put underfoot is death. All right. I know I just wrecked some of your worlds. I'm really sorry. I, I really don't take pleasure in doing this. I really don't. Um, I really don't. I like getting truth out, but I don't like how disorienting it can be for people. All right, so Father, thank you for who you are. Lord, Holy Spirit, come. I just ask, Father, that you'll water whatever was of you. Whatever was not of you, let it just fall away. Be forgotten and not be a stumbling block. But whatever was of you, Father, let it be powerful truth that sets people free from fear about the future, fear about what's happening in our world, um, and liberates them to walk in the fullness of who they are as Christians, as sons and daughters of God. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.